ready? to be a light to the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech olam, borei pri hagafin, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech olam. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and we pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruchu, the call to worship. Baruchu et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamoka. Mihamocha ma'elim Adonai, Mihamocha nedar ba'kodesh, Norat ehilot osef elei, 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natanlanu et derech haYeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et Hashabbat la asot et Hashabbat la Doratam berit olam b'nei Ovayan b'nei Yisrael oti leolam. Keshashet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayenefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Aronai Elochecha. V'chol levavcha, uv'chol nafshecha, uv'chol meyodecha. V'hayu ha'devarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. V'shinantam levanecha, v'debartabam, v'shivtecha, v'beftrecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derech, uv'shuchbecha, uv'kumicha. U'ksartam leot al yedecha, v'hayu letotafot benanecha. U'ktaftam al mezuzot betecha uv'ishorecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. You were the word at the beginning The one with God, the Lord most high Your hidden glory in creation 
Yours is the glory. 
Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Welcome to our Arab Shabbat service here on this Sabbath. This is the Sabbath we teach Vayera. We're in the book of Genesis talking about Abraham. And uh, three Torah portions that cover Abraham. This is the middle one uh, for us. And if you recall, in the Torah portion, this is the part where, for example, uh, Abraham is there at the Oaks of Mamre. And the Lord appears to him in the form of three figures. He invites the Lord to come and have lunch in the shade by the tree. Uh, Sarah, his wife, makes uh, you know, her special cakes for him, and he serves this nice meal uh, to the Lord uh, before the Lord announces they're going down to Sodom and Gomorrah and going to be judging uh, Sodom and Gomorrah for it. Those are some of the parts uh, in this. Our Haftor portion keys off of this, the hospitality that Abraham showed to the Lord uh, when he came to have lunch. The, one of the principles that we talk about in, when it comes to the descendants of Abraham, to show yourself to be the sons of Abraham, is your ability to show hospitality. And one of the things that we learn from the Torah in this lesson is the following Drosh principle. Hospitality leads to intercession. The, when you do something good for someone, that is when God grants favor to you to hear your prayers. And if you do good to brethren and then request of God, well, God is completely in agreement with you because he's all about blessing and doing good to the brethren. So if you're doing those things and then making request of the Lord, uh, to continue to further those kinds of things, this is where we get the principle, hospitality leads to intercession. 
And of course, that's the big thing that we see here as to Abraham showed hospitality to the Lord, and then he pleaded for the case of how many righteous could be in Sodom without the Lord destroying Sodom. And if you remember, he negotiated down to 10 righteous. If there's 10 righteous, will you judge and destroy the whole city? He said, no, I won't. Well, there wasn't 10 righteous uh, in the city, and so the judgment actually took place. Now, this portion, the Hoftor portion, comes to us as a story about Elisha and uh, what will be known as the Shulamite woman. And so we are in 2 Kings chapter 4. Let me give just a little bit of background so that we're all up to speed on as we go to this portion. Elisha was a fellow who traveled along with Elijah, Elijah the prophet. You remember Elijah the prophet? was the one that dealt with King Ahab and Jezebel, you know, and they had the scene up on Mount Carmel where they set up the two altars and Elijah called for fire to come down and uh, to, to destroy the sacrifice. And the prophets of Baal uh, were slain, you know, up on there. Elisha is the prophet that came after Elijah, uh, after he was taken up, and he was a prophet like and to like Elijah. In those days, there was an, a place in Israel which is down to the south and to the east near the Jordan River called Gilgal. And Gilgal was the place that, that uh, um, Joshua and the children of Israel, when they first entered the land, that's where they went. They went to Gilgal, and Gilgal has a, a big history uh, in Israel for a lot of things. Well, at Gilgal in those same days, there was an element there called the school of prophets. And what those were was that became a community of other godly people uh, and who agreed with the prophets and who used to dwell there uh, to stay away from uh, the other things of the world, such as Jezebel and other things in that day. And even um, Saul had this in his days, and he had gone down to the school of prophets and so forth. And it's kind of like this little community uh, that kind of separated themselves spiritually from all of the rest of the land because of the bad things going on in the land, and they were trying to preserve and be obedient to the Lord at that place. I mention that because part of our story today is that Elisha, after doing certain things with a Shulamite woman, will go down to the school of prophets. He'll go down to Gilgal, uh, where he will be at. So let me take you to 2 Kings chapter 4, and we're going to begin at uh, verse 1. We're going to look at this whole chapter here. And there's a parallel back to our Torah portion based on certain hospitality and certain uh, good deeds being done. Elisha is going to do some good things for this woman, and that's the, that's the reason why we have this parallel passage. Let me go ahead and read for you of it. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha. We believe this woman that we're talking about used to be the wife of Obadiah prophet Obadiah. And your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor 
has come to take my two children to be slaves. A little background. We think that what happened here was that she and Obadiah had uh, put up as collateral uh, some of their things to help fund the work of the prophets that was in that day, school of prophets and so forth. And that with Obadiah had died, now all of a sudden she didn't have the means to pay these creditors. The creditors were coming. And in those ancient days, you could sell yourself into slavery um, and to pay the debt. And she wasn't, didn't have any value, but her children had value. And so the creditor was coming and demanding her children to be able to pay this debt uh, for it. If you recall, you know, we had the Shemitah year. You know, you'd be, you'd be a bondservant for six years up to the seventh year. The Shemitah year, you're released. And so their children were getting ready to go into this servitude to pay for the debt under that system. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. So that's, that's how meager her means are, you know, at this point. And Elijah is asking her, what do you have, you know, to begin with? Verse 3, then he said, go borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, empty vessels, do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you, and your sons uh, pour out all of these vessels, and you will set aside what is full. In other words, she's going to take this one jar of oil, and she's going to pour that into other vessels, and essentially the miracle that's going to take place is that's going to fill all the vessels they get. And so when you're done, she has all these vessels with oil. It then can be sold. Verse 5. So she went from him, shut the door behind her and her sons, and they were bringing in the vessels to her, and she poured. And it came about when the vessels were full that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not one vessel more, and the oil stopped. So truly the oil filled up as many vessels as they could possibly get their hands on. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debt you and your sons can live on the rest. Uh, there is a principle here, uh, a financial principle that the Jewish people have used that comes from this portion, comes from the teaching. And that is when you're dealing with the poor, and by the way, we're always going to have the poor, the brethren, you give aid and help to the poor person not by paying their debt, you get them to pay the debt, and then you give to them to help them so that they're enabled to do it. The end result is they have their dignity and self-respect. They paid the debt. The debtor has been paid, and, and they got through this whole situation. Let me tell you what the modern application is. As the director of the ministry here, I had many people, many brethren, who came to me that were in need. Um, they had this bill, they, you know, that they had to pay. And one of the things that I used to do with them is I said, you know, your problem is not the need for money. Your problem is the need for to make better judgments. And so one of the things that we would do is we'd say, 
take the money that you're holding on to for your groceries, you go pay your debt. Then I will supply you with additional groceries, you know, for you to have. I'll give you food, and I'll give you things for food, but you pay your debt. So when you're done, you have learned how to pay your debt properly, and, you, and God took care of your needs. And that's one of the keys to financial security and financial success, is always carry out in good faith all of your business dealings, and you have the Lord to meet your most basic needs. God's in the business of meeting needs, not wants. And if you went out and overextended yourself financially on something you wanted, God is not going to come and deliver you paying off one of your wants. He will deliver you and help you with one of your needs. So take the resources you have, go pay that debt off from it. And that's essentially the principle that's being employed here. Elisha gets her, you pay the debt, and I'll take care of the rest that you need. I'll take care of the needs that you have. And that's essentially what took place here. The um, a fascinating little story. You know, she was in need. Elisha used a very wise way to do it. And though in the midst of it, we have this, what appears to be, this supernatural event. God supplied the oil, you know, out of this one jar. The, um, I've been asked a multitude number of times, <laughs> the future of the Great Tribulation and where we have vehicles and what are we going to use for gasoline? What are we going to use for fuel? And I said, well, you know, God's in the business of creating oil. You know, and I'm certain that gasoline is not beyond his uh, skill set. That if he wants to create gasoline and fill every gas tank, he can do it. He was able to fill every vessel with oil, and he was able to do it. And so it's, again, back to a situation of that our trust is primarily on the Lord. He knows what our needs are and what they're going to be. And God is in the business of being our provision for our needs. So this is part of the inspiration that comes from the story. Well, but we're going to see a little bit more about this issue of hospitality and how it works in the remainder of this chapter. When we come to verse 8, it says, Now there came a day when Elisha passed over uh, Shulamim, and there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat some food. Apparently, Elisha used to make this one particular trip on a regular basis, and this one woman extended hospitality to him to come in and eat food, just like Abraham had done with the Lord, had compelled him to come in and receive uh, food. And so it turns out this happens for a while, and then she gets the idea, since he's traveling there so frequently, more than just food, she talks to her husband and says, let us build another room on top of our house and let's put a bed and a lamp and a table and a chair in it so that he has a place to lodge when he's on the trip. He has a place that he can uh, stay uh, there. And so she does that and Elisha is suddenly now not only eating a meal there but is able to stay and rest there as a part of his journeys. And it goes on from there. Now, we come to a point uh, in which that Elisha decides to do something good for her. 
Now, she has her old husband and herself, and that's it. In those days, folks, if you were a woman and your husband was getting old, you better have some sons because the sons are the ones who are going to be able to take care of you and do the things that were needful. She doesn't have any children. So it comes to her uh, that Elijah finds out about this. And so he, um, uh, verse 14, so he said, what then is to be done for her? And this is the aid to Elisha, Gezazi, Gehazi, uh, answered, truly she has no son and her husband is old. And he said, call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, at this season next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, oh, my God, do not lie to your maidservant. If you go back to the Torah portion at the Oaks of Mamre, what did the Lord say to Abraham and to Sarah? I will come back at this time. You will have a son. So Elisha's doing the same thing the Lord did with Abraham and Sarah. And sure enough, she does receive a son. Her husband is able to father a son with her, and she now has a son. Well, everything's great. Everything's going well for her. But her son gets to the point where he's now able to leave the house, and he's able to go out and help with the harvest. And apparently he goes out to help with the harvest, and suddenly, as a result of being out there, he is, is somehow injured. In which that he says in verse 19, he said to his father, my head, my head. And he said to him, service, carry him to his mother. Now, most Bible commentators, we think that maybe he got a case of sunstroke. That he was out during the harvest and there was a sunstroke. There's no indication that he may have been struck by a tool or had a, a head injury, but whatever happened to him, it overwhelmed him, he was in great pain, and they take him home, and he dies. He dies with his mother. His mother now is going to make a journey to Elisha, and comes to Elisha, and we begin with these words as she comes up to approach. Verse 26, and I want you to take note of this verse. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? These three statements. What does that represent? That's a form of special hospitality. Um, when you meet people uh, in the business world and, and so forth, um, for example, when I go to the doctor and I visit with the doctor, the, it's kind of a one-way conversation. The doctor's always asking me about me. How are you feeling? you have any complaints? Blah, blah, blah. You know, that's the way it usually does. Do yourself a favor the next time you go see the doctor and ask the doctor how his family is. You know, balance it out. Be as interested in his care and his well-being as he is in your. Elisha's immediately asking her, tell me of your well-being, okay? And good friends do this all the time, especially as we get older. As we get older, we go, you doing okay? <laughs> you, know, you feeling all right? Nothing hurting, you know, kind of thing. Are you well? You know, 
and we become concerned for one another if the answer is not I'm fine or everything's going good. This is a form of hospitality and real relationship. And God wanted a relationship with Abraham and Sarah, uh, and there was a lot of the circumstances that went into that. Uh, we're getting the same lesson from Elisha. It is the tradition, based on this teaching, that uh, Jewish people, when they meet someone, a stranger, a, a, a new person, whatever the case may be, you know you've met an observant Jewish person if all of a sudden in your first greeting he asks, well, uh, how's your family? Are, are you doing okay? In other words, they extend a, a kind of a, 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 hosp a hospitable way for you to open your life up to them. They are willing to extend uh, interest and blessing uh, to you. Uh, the exact opposite is they have no interest in you and then you feel cold and they don't care. But if someone will ask you how you're doing and how's your family doing, why that, that's very special. You, you enjoy that relationship. He asked three specific questions because he knows three things about her. He asked, how is she doing? Now, I know your husband is old. How is he doing? And I know you have a child. How is he doing? Well, it comes to the point, she gives the standard answer we all give when somebody asks, well, how are you doing? You know, what do we always say? Oh, I'm doing fine. For the aid to Elisha, that's what she says. It is well. But it's really not. Her son has died. And she wants to have a conversation with Elisha, not with his aid. And so she goes, and she clings to his feet. At verse 27, And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught hold of his feet. I mean, she went down on her face and holding his feet. That tells you that she's got a serious matter. And Gehazi uh, came near to push her away, but the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. He knows something is wrong. Even though you know, he, he doesn't know the specifics, he knows, wait a minute, there's something going on here. Okay. Um, perceptive counselors will a lot of times have a person to come and will share a little bit, but they don't share everything. They don't share maybe the most important parts. And as a good counselor, as someone who's going to minister, you have to be perceptive enough to get past that. Oh, and it's like husbands who have to understand a good relationship with their wife. You know, you go in, you see your wife seems to be troubled. You ask her, well, uh, how are you doing? She goes, oh, I'm fine. Well, you all know she's not. You get beyond that. And so that's essentially what we have playing out the human dynamic of get beyond that. That's all part of hospitality. That's all part of caring for someone. Well, as the story goes on uh, to say, he now travels with her to uh, back to their home. Guess where they laid the son? In the bed in the room that they had made for Elisha. And so he goes back, and first of all, his aide uh, checks on the child, 
and the child doesn't appear to be revived or can't be revived. But Elisha goes in, lays down on top of the child, gets as close to the child as it can, and suddenly the child is raised up and is alive again. And uh, so we have what appears to be this raising up of, of a person, you know, from that. All of these events took place up near Mount Carmel where Elijah had operated, but the Gilgal had been the place that Elijah was always traveling to, and the Shulamite woman was part of that journey uh, that took place for it. Again, the parallels that take us back to this Torah portion is Abraham hosting the Lord. It's about the announcement of a son, and it's about how all of those things um, demonstrate to us the hospitality of Abraham, and those same things are being replicated in this Haftor portion uh, with Elisha, the prophet, and the Shulamite woman. So that's the reason why this portion ties into the Torah portion uh, and is part of reinforcing the themes that we see from the Torah. So that's our Haftor for this week. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. Hold your finger there at verse 4, where the Brit Hadashah portion uh, for our Torah portion this week will begin. And as you do that, let us go before the Lord and turn this time over to Him. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time and this week, uh, Father, and we thank You for Your teaching and Your instruction. Father, bless us as we go through the New Testament for this week, and may we be encouraged and strengthened uh, as we look at Your Torah, the living Word of God, and how it impacts us in our personal lives. So, Father, we thank You for being with us here at this time. We thank You in Yeshua's name. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is Vayera, which means, and I appeared, and and he appeared. And this is when the Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. This is a very, this is actually one of my favorite Torah portions in which the Abraham actually gets to sit down and have lunch with the Lord. And the Lord presents himself in three separate persons and he, have a, a, he serves a meal to them and shows great hospitality to the Lord. And then also this is when the promise of the, of Isaac to be born, the promised son, is given to Abraham at this time saying that he will have a son through his wife Sarah and this will be the promised son. This is once again one of the other parallels to our Messiah Yeshua as Isaac being the promised son to Abraham is fulfilling the same, is a prophetic, is a prophecy of the Messiah to come who is the promised Son of God who will come and be the Savior to the world. There's amazing parallels in all of those things. And then we also have the time in which Abraham negotiates with the Lord for Sodom and Gomorrah, where his nephew Lot is residing, but we know that this was obviously a terrible place, and that God then tells Abraham what he is about to do, that he's going to bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And we have Abraham able to negotiate with the Lord, for if the Lord were to find any righteous there in the city, that God would spare his judgment. We also have the promise of Isaac actually being born, him being weaned, and the great celebration of that, as well as the dismissal of Hagar and Ishmael, who were the other, the other wife, the handmaiden of Sarah, that Abraham fathered another child through. 
And we also have in our Torah portion the Akidah or the binding of Isaac when Abraham's faith was tested. Now, with all of these stories and things that are going on in our Torah portion, there are so many avenues that we can talk about, things that we can study specifically about the Torah portion, how they impact our lives, how they parallel the Messiah. And what I hope to do, obviously, with the Brit Hadashah portion for this week is to bring out some of those highlights of our Torah portion, but teach them, of course, through the words of the New Testament. So in 2 Peter, at chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 4, we have a warning to us that is given to us by Peter, who is writing, who was a bondservant of the Messiah, and is writing one of these letters, and he's trying to share what he knows. And what he is teaching us here, and, and the headline here in my New King James says that this is a warning to false teachers, to people who are um, who say that they are believers but actually aren't, who aren't righteous, who do not act with righteousness, and that it is a warning that judgment comes to even the household of faith. And he uses the parallel and the pattern of the judgment that was put upon Sodom and Gomorrah in this teaching. Let me now read here at 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, at verse 4, where it says this, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in a flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, they are pres presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. This is a warning, of course, to that God is a just God that brings judgment to those who walk in iniquity, walk in lawlessness. He once again quoted, went back to the story of uh, Noah, where that we had the judgment that was upon the entire world, that Noah, along with one of eight people, were saved from that judgment because of the wickedness and the depravity and, the, and all of the sin that was going on at that time. He also mentioned at the very beginning of the passage something that sometimes gets touched on, sometimes not, all the way back to the fall of the angels, that there are angels in creation that have fallen, but then have been then reserved for judgment, put into chains of darkness. This goes into the deeper spiritual nature of what God created in the, in the creation, that He created man and woman, but He created us to be less than the angels. But then there even has been a rebellion in the heavens of the angels that have been cast down, and that's where we believe 
where we have gotten demons and where Satan has his dominion and reign, and that but God has still put judgment upon them. Even angels that God created. When we think of angels, we're like, man, angels, if they're greater than men, they're these heavenly beings that surely that they will have, that they carry some sort of clout with the Lord. But no, even in their sin and their depravity, does God judge them? So then even for us, why would we ever think that we walk in some righteous way that we would somehow be able to avoid judgment? Absolutely not. We must understand, and it's through these examples, the example of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah, that God is a just God, that He will bring about judgment, and sometimes that judgment, we can get caught up in it, but there is hope. There is hope that God does deliver those who are righteous. That Lot, being the one righteous man that they could find in Sodom and Gomorrah, when the angels appeared before in the cities and went to Lot, and Lot had to pull the angel in from the streets to make sure that nothing, no harm came to him because of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. It specifically said there in 2 Peter where it said this, that the ones who do perform these terrible acts, this wickedness, that they're self-willed, they act presumptuously, they speak evil of dignitaries. Even if there is an angelic majesty that is in your presence, the one that is a a powerful, one, one that has authority, spiritual authority or positional authority, that even the worst of the wicked even speak ill of one who is greater than them, even in the presence of them. This is the same way that the people that would stand up, that would, that would speak out against any sort of positional authority. These are the people that when you're talking to somebody who is, uh, who is over you or in a higher authority than you, but you speak to them in an un, unworthy manner, you talk to them in an unseemly way, this, is the same, this might start in a home where this is dishonoring of a father and a mother. This is dishonoring of, of a of a spiritual authority that is put over somebody, and this is a sin that goes all the way back. This is the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. But that, that theme or that uh, principle continues on with anyone who is in any position, positional authority over you. The people who act wickedly, who act with no righteousness, this is one of the signs that you will see. When you see somebody, whether this, this might be a college class, and you might have a student that starts speaking to the professor as if, they, uh, as, if there's a, as if they're less than or that they don't know anything, and you might sit back and you'd be like, whoa, what's, the, what's going on here where this person is clearly um, arguing against this, this authority on a certain matter? What it is is this is a sign of somebody who truly has darkness in their heart, that has wickedness in them, that would speak evil of any sort of authority over them. This is just some of the signs that we see around us, knowing that when we see these things, the Lord has made it very clear on multiple occasions. God will judge those who walk in wickedness and iniquity. He will absolutely, He does not let the guilty go unpunished. And when we find ourselves amongst that particular behavior, we ourselves have to be concerned. Now, we can trust the Lord that the Lord might deliver us in our righteousness, but we should never speak as if we have any righteousness for ourselves when we find ourselves in that situation. I guarantee you Lot was in a great deal of fear for his life when he was allowed to escape. But now when those judgments come, we have a lesson that we can learn, of course, from Lot's wife. We know the story of Lot's wife where, of course, as they're escaping him and his two daughters, and Lot's wife obviously is running away. But However, 
She does a terrible thing when it comes to the deliverance of God, and that is she looked back. She looked back to what she had there in Sodom and Gomorrah. As terrible as that place was, there was judgment coming, but there was something that caused her to yearn for what was there, what, to, 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 that, that she was missing the wickedness, if, if I could say that. And we have a reference to Lot's wife. The Messiah himself used Lot's wife as a teaching example when he was explaining, and he's talking about what will the end of days be like. And if you go to Luke chapter 17, there toward the end of the chapter, he's talking about what it will be like at the end of the age. It'll be like it was like the days of Noah, and it would, there will be these judgments that will be coming. And there's a warning that is given to us as uh, that talking about Lot, talking about his wife. And so let me read here now, Luke chapter 17. And we will, let's go ahead and let's start at verse 22, and we'll go ahead and read the majority of this passage here. He said to his disciples, this is the Messiah speaking, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there, but do not go after them and follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heavens shines to the other part of heavens, so also shall the Son of Man will be in His day. But first He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on that day, Lot went out of Sodom. It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house. Let him not come down and take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save, the, save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that, in that night, there will be two men in one bed, and one will be taken, and the other one will be left. Two women will be grinding together, and one will be taken, and the other left. Two men will be in the field, and one will be taken, and the other left. This is obviously talking about in the day of judgment. In the day of judgment, there will be those that will be delivered, and there will be those that will be punished. There will be those that die in that judgment and ones that will be delivered. And we have that reference there of Lot's wife who looked back in that very curious verse there, verse 33 of Luke 17. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Obviously, what we're talking about here is we're talking about maybe two different definitions of the word life. Obviously, if you seek to save your life, your physical life, so that you might say a lot, stay alive, that you'll lose your life, like you'll die. Okay, so I'm trying to save my life, my physical life, but I'm going to die. But however, if I lose my life, if I die, I will then be saved. Well, if I'm trying to escape judgment, how does that necessarily make sense? May I submit that you can interpret that verse looking at this way, not your physical living body that is the life you're trying to preserve, but perhaps the life that you had is what you would seek to preserve, and then your physical life will die because you will be looking back to what you had previously. That's the way I like to interpret this verse. That when you lose your life, you lose, all right, so if judgment is coming, 
And so if a great judgment, a whirlwind is coming, you're going to lose your house. You're going to lose your house. You're going to lose all your belongings. But you will get your life, your family, your person, and you're out of way of whatever that judgment is. And you will lose the life that you knew. The house, the belongings, the blessings, the, the, what you used to eat on the, on the regular. All of those things you will lose. But your physical life will be preserved. That's what we have to learn and understand. But if you seek to preserve those things, if you seek to, oh, well, I, I, I got to make sure I bring this and I got to bring that and I got to make sure I have those parts of my life present or I'm not going to feel like I'm living anymore. Well, you know what? When the judgment comes, you'll get caught up in it. And that's, of course, what the lesson we learned from Lot's wife, who looked back. Why did, why did she look back? Well, one could say, hey, man, that seems kind of harsh because there's fire and brimstone coming out of heaven. Wouldn't somebody want to see miracles of God? But no, we, we obviously know that spiritually she was looking back for another reason, not because she wanted to look at the explosion of what was happening in the city, but there was something she still yearned for in that city, in that wickedness, in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what we have to learn to not do. We have to learn to know that it's like, look, when the judgment is coming, that we are, Lord, I'm getting caught up with you. There is nothing that, is, that, that I own that I'm going to need to save so that you can save me, save for my family. I'm going to grab my wife. I'm going to grab my kids. And that is what, Lord, take us there. We can lose our belongings. We can lose our house. We can lose our car. We can lose all of those things. But when the time comes that judgment is coming, that is the attitude we must have toward the Lord because we have the warnings here in the Scripture. This is the kind of believers we need to be, ones that walk in faith the way Abraham did following after the Lord, believing His promises. What God has said, if He says we will be delivered, that we believe it wholeheartedly, and there's not any sort of thought in the back of our head that somehow we have the power to preserve our life or that, that, that something that we do is going to be, uh, that's going to contribute to our deliverance. No, it's going to be the Lord and the Lord alone. He will receive all glory, authority, and all power to Him for whatever deliverance needs to take place. We do want to have that faith, just like Abraham did. Just like when God said, and I already said this last week, and I say this every time we talk about Abraham, Abraham waited 25 years for, his, for the promise of his son and his seed to be born so that all the families of the earth could be blessed. 25 years. We in this country can't wait 25 minutes for one thing or another, if we have to wait that long for a meal, we seem to completely lose ourselves, lose our minds. Abraham had so much faith, and it was that faith and the way Abraham carried himself that allowed for God to call him his friend. What was the thing that, that God said of Abraham? If we go back, when they're negotiating for, um, you know, when, when God says, I'm going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, should we tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And he says this of Abraham, I absolutely love this that when he's speaking of Abraham, shall I hide from him what I am about to do? But then God says to God, and he says, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. God says that of Abraham. 
And this is after he has given hospitality. This is after he has kept the promises. This is after he circumcised himself and his whole family and shown the, 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 favor, the uh, hospitality to the Lord that God then says this of Abraham. What an amazing testimony that is. Don't you want God to say the same of you? That it's like you've shown this. Now he now says this. He has the ability and he will command his children and his household after him. It's after that testimony is given of Abraham does his promised son actually be born. Isaac wasn't born yet. But after this testimony, this is a part of the blessing upon him that Isaac will be born. He is, Abraham has now proven himself to be ready to father that son and to teach him and his seed the ways of the Lord. And he says that he will do righteousness and justice, or he will sometimes, translations say, perform righteous judgment that when it comes to judging between matters of one thing or another, that he has righteous judgment, just as the Lord has righteous judgment. The Lord will always judge righteously. He will make the right decision, the right judgment, whether it's mercy, whether it's justice, whether it's the right amount of mercy, the right amount of justice, only God can even those scales and can do that. But what he says of his testimony of Abraham is this, is that Abraham too makes those righteous judgments. So the promise of the son comes. So that we now know, so that Isaac, when he comes, he is that, that because of Abraham's faith, Isaac has been born. Uh, believe you me, this might be kind of strange to think of it this way. If Abraham had ever wavered in his faith prior to Isaac being born, do you think it's possible God might have found another? that Abraham has proven himself through 25 years of not being worthy of the promised son, and then Abraham actually never would have the promised son? It's possible when he messes up, if he messed up in his life. But Abraham's faith stood strong. He believed in the promises of God. That is the biblical definition of faith. So now when we're talking about Isaac, Isaac was born, and Isaac, there was a great rejoicing when Isaac was born of Sarah. He was the fulfillment of the promised son. Paul references Isaac, and he uses him in a, te- in a form of teaching here. If we go to Romans chapter 9, uh, Paul is speaking of Isaac and talking about that he is the fulfillment of this promised generation, a promise of a future, if you will, that we now, because Isaac's been born, then now is, is showing that God fulfills his promises and that we should get caught up and be a part of that family the family of Isaac. It's, of course, through that seed, through Isaac, that then Jacob is born, hence the entire nation of Israel, hence all of the kings, all of the prophets, and the physical lineage of the Messiah himself are all through this line, through this seed. We want to be a part of that family. You know, whenever we have family, sometimes we have certain sides of the family that maybe we like a little bit more than the other. Maybe one's not as weird. One, one doesn't, you don't have the black sheep of the family on that side. You know, it's like your, your mom's side of the family. I got certain aunts and uncles over there. Your dad's side of the family got certain aunts and uncles over there. But mm, the ones on that side are a little bit different than the ones on this side. You know what I'm saying? Well, this is when it comes to the family of Abraham. Abraham and his seed went throughout the entire earth. We have the descendants of Ishmael that came, of course, through Hagar. That we have all a whole other. Uh, nations of people that all came through that line. But we have to, but we should desire, we all desire to be in the family of Abraham, but we should desire to be in perhaps the right side of the family, the one of promise, 
the one of the Spirit, not the one of the flesh, not the one of selfishness or selfish desires. Paul says this in Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 6, it says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, but they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children, uh, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. This is going back to the promise of what God said when He said it will be through Sarah that the son is born. Not Hagar, not the bondwoman, not through Ishmael will the seed be. And the, he's not the child of promise. But through Sarah and through Isaac, he is the child of promise. So just like it says right there, not all who are uh, all Israel are of Israel. Not who say that they are in the seed, in the family of Abraham, truly are a part of Abraham. Like I said, we want to be counted in the seed of Abraham, but through the child of promise, not the child of the flesh. If we go now to Galatians chapter 4, this is where we're talking once again more about this exact same concept. Paul is kind of teaching the same way, obviously, to another group of people, to the Galatians now. So in Galatians chapter 4, it says this, at verse, let's start at verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for the Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is the bondage with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free." which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children, and she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him that was born according to the Spirit. Even so, it is now, nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. But then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. This is, of course, a once again another passage of Scripture that some people take out of context as far as saying that because of this being the case is that he's likening unto the covenant and the words that came from Mount Sinai as being bondage that we then are somehow supposed to cast that away for instead the spirit of the law that we are now children of promise through Messiah Yeshua. He said multiple times, Paul has said in multiple other times about how, no, we do not void the law by now the giving of the spirit or that the Messiah now has come, that we, now the law is voided. But what it is is this, is that we are to have the law written upon our hearts, that we are to have it be a part of our lives, not so much so that we're doing so that we might earn our place in the kingdom by our works, by what we do, 
by following the law, but know that we have the Spirit inside of us and that we are a part of the family of Abraham through Isaac and through his seed, child of promise, not children according to the flesh. Look, this is, what, this is how I like to talk about Ishmael, the fact that Ishmael was born, that Sarah gave her maid woman to Abraham and say, hey, let her bear a child for me. This was before the promise was given to Sarah that she would have a son in one year's time that she would have a son and that Isaac was actually born. What it was was this, was she was trying to figure out how to fulfill the promise of God under her own power. What can we do in this world, in this age, to show that God's promises are being fulfilled? Let me, as I say that, I would hope that you would sort of recognize that's not really the way we should go about things. That because God has given us a promise that something's going to happen, does that mean that we're supposed to work under our own power with our own devices and our own schemes to show that God has fulfilled His promises? The answer is no. God can do that all on His own. Through miraculous works and miraculous deeds, God can show Himself to be faithful and fulfill His promises. Sarah thought that if we bear Abraham a son in the way we know how to do it, that then God's promise will be fulfilled and Ishmael will then be that promise of the seed. But God said, no, that is not how my promises are fulfilled. But that's what it is to be a child of the flesh because we try to do things with our flesh to show that God is faithful. God is faithful all by Himself. What we have to do is we have to submit to what God has said and not try to do things for ourselves. This is the mistake that people make with the Torah and with the covenant from Mount Sinai. And this is what I think Paul is saying here in the book of Galatians. We think that because we have the Torah, because we can read those commandments, that we can do those things do with all of our power and with all of our might, and I can show myself to be the child of God because I keep the commandments, and I keep them so good. I do all of these commandments here. I've never committed that commandment here. I got my buddy over here that he breaks that commandment all the time, but I'm good on this commandment here. And we, in our own power, try to show that we are faithful to the Lord. That is not how we are to follow the Torah. We are not to follow it in a way that we're trying to show with our own power and with our own works that we are the children of God, that God has chosen us, that we have salvation. No, au contraire. We are chosen by God because God chooses us. He chose us first. We must carry ourselves in a way and walk in a way to where we are a blessing to those around us. And in doing so, what we do is we have to keep the Torah not to show ourselves approved, but to walk in the blessing and uh, what God has promised to give to us. Good things, blessings. Don't kill anybody because then you won't end up in prison. Don't steal from your neighbor. That way your labor will love you. All of these things is what we do so that we are blessed in the course of our life. This is the mistake people make with the Torah, and this is what Paul was speaking against. Don't use the works of Torah to somehow show yourself to be approved under your own power so that you will prove to yourself you're a child of the flesh and that your flesh can deliver you. No, be a child of promise. Be a child of, of, of the, the freedom of, of, of the child of Sarah and of Isaac and of Jacob and of Israel and walk in that way that you have been adopted in into that family through the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. That is who we should be. 
that we should not use the Torah to show ourselves approved. The Torah gives us blessing, and the Torah is not nullified by following the Spirit and following the teachings of Yeshua. But some use the Torah for that purposes, for that purpose, and that is what Paul is speaking against. We are not justified by our works, but we're justified by faith. Go with me now to James chapter 2. Where, as here in the New Testament, we're going through the pattern of the Torah portion and, and, and what we learn from the, what Abraham did and what his faith was. If we go to James chapter 2, starting at verse 14, it says this, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? This is, this is going back to the whole thing that, that works and faith, they have to work together. You can't choose one or the other. You can't choose the Messiah and do all your Torah, and you can't use Torah to show yourself approved. This is the balance that we're obviously teaching here. Can faith save him? If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus, also faith by itself, it does, if it does not have works, is dead." But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith working together with His works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and, it was call and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. The two have to be in unison. Abraham, yes, he had the faith. He believed in the promises of God. But if he did not circumcise himself when God said to, he would have not fulfilled the sign of the covenant that God gave to him. And if when he was called by God to go and offer his son Isaac, and he did not gather the wood, if he did not take his son, if he did not tie the ropes and bound his son's wrists and his feet and laid him upon the altar and about to do that, then his faith would not have counted for anything. You can't rely on just one or the other. Because if Abraham was doing that without any faith in God, then he was a crazy man by doing that to his son. But no, this is showing through Abraham that com the combination of faith and works are necessary. This is about us walking in spirit and truth. We can't only walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. We all have flesh. We all are born in the flesh. We all woke up this morning because we all needed sleep last night. We all are flesh. But we must walk in that, of course, because, we, because that's the existence that we live in. But we must balance that with the spirit of faith, which is what Abraham had. They must come together. And Abraham showed himself 100% without question to have faith in God. What faith did he have? You read that passage and you're like, Abraham, what are you doing? Are you crazy? God says, go and sacrifice Isaac, this promised son, the one you waited 25 years to be born, and, and, and through your, your barren wife, who was 90 years old, past the, the age of childbearing, and you're going to go and sacrifice him on the altar? Well, there's a lot of faith going on behind the scenes. 
You know what one of the things I like to say about Abraham? How much faith he had? He believed in the power of resurrection. Resurrection, the thing that in, all, in our Christian faith that we believe in the Messiah, the thing that proves our faith that the Messiah has conquered death, that yes, He died a mortal death, but He rose again. That takes a lot of faith, especially walking in this day and age. You don't really see that very often now, do you? Abraham obviously believed in it. Because look, if I'm, look, God, you said that through him, through his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He doesn't have any sons at this time. He was about 30-some years old, as old as possibly 37. Could not have been any younger than 27, based on some chronology studies there. Abraham, uh, Isaac was a, was a young lad at this time, and in about his 30s. And he hadn't had any sons yet. He wasn't even married yet. And so his seed can't be the one that all the, that, that all the families of the earth will be blessed if he's dead but God, I'm going to follow what you said anyways. Abraham believed that even if he slayed him, that he would be resurrected. There'd be a new body and his son Isaac would still be there. He believed in the resurrection. That's why the faith of Abraham is necessary for believing in the Messiah. Is because believing that the resurrection happened and it's possible is what gives us hope, gives us hope for a future and that we have a faith in the Messiah that the world doesn't have. The world doesn't believe that, that once you die that you will can come back. Other religions have taken this idea and says, oh no, of course you'll come back, but you'll come back as a, this thing here or that thing there or whatever. No, no, no. I believe that when somebody dies, that God, I believe in a God that has the power to raise them from the dead because he has the power over death. And he's proven that with Yeshua of Nazareth. It's amazing the parallels between that binding of Isaac and the sacrifice of the Messiah. I love it when it says right there, um, when it's back to that, that he bound his son Isaac. He, he tied ropes around his wrists. And in fact, that's the, the Hebrew word there, akad, I believe it is, is the same word that's also used for stripes or for, for like, like, like a striping or a scarring. And so it literally could say and could read that Abraham striped his son's wrists and laid him upon the altar of sacrifice. Believe you me, I believe this. It doesn't say this explicitly in the Scripture, but I believe that Isaac was permanently scarred from this happening, that the, that the ropes were tied. Abraham's faith was tied so tight that there was a permanent scar on his wrists from his binding and being laid upon the altar. This is the same pattern and parallel of the Messiah Yeshua, our promised Son, the promised Savior, that He too has scars on His wrists. We believe the nails went through the wrists, not through the hands. They wouldn't have been able to support His weight. And the Messiah Himself had scars on His wrists showing faithfulness. In the case of Isaac, it shows the faithfulness of his father. In the case of the Messiah Yeshua, it shows the faithfulness of our Heavenly Father to fulfill the promises and to bring about another lamb that is the sacrifice that is needed for us, for our sin and for our breaking of the covenant. Those scars on those wrists show the sign of faithfulness of not only our father Abraham, but also of our Heavenly Father. So when we look at the story of Abraham, the story of Isaac, the promised son, we cannot deny the parallels between the faith of Abraham and the faith we have in our Messiah Yeshua and the promise of His Son being our Savior, our Lord and Savior, who has forgiven all of our sins, who has redeemed us for out of the slavery, who gives us the atonement and the covering for our uncleanness, and who is our hope, the way, the truth, the life. 
by which we walk out our most holy faith. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for your teaching, your instruction once again for our father Abraham, for everything that we can learn. Father, thank you for the faithfulness of Abraham. Thank you for the faithfulness, Lord, of Paul and Peter and all those, Lord, who continued to walk in all the teachings that they learned from Yeshua. When you walked this earth and when you taught your instructions, your Torah on this earth, Father, you are the author and the finisher of our faith, Lord. You spoke with authority over the words, over the Torah, Lord, because you are the lawgiver. Father, we submit to you, Lord. May we follow you in everything that we do. Father, may our works not be uh, done alone without faith. And Father, may our faith not be there without any uh, actions to show for what we believe. But Father, may we walk both in faith and in works, walk in spirit and in truth. And Father, may we walk and be spirit, uh, walk in the spirit and be children of the promise. As we also believe, Lord, that we are descendants of the ancients, Lord, even of their natural flesh. Lead us and guide us in everything that we do. Protect us, Lord, from the wicked, from the judgments that will come upon this earth one day. Protect your righteous, Lord. We thank you, Lord, and deliver us from evil. And Father, cause us to submit wholeheartedly before you and not look back for anything that you may have given to us in a previous life, Father. But may we always look forward to the promises that you will give to us in the kingdom with your inheritance. So, Lord, we bless you. We thank you on this Sabbath day. It's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.